the idea behind the revisiting was to look back at some of these nine institutions and just have a conversation with them and just ask what strategies, how their strategies have evolved in default prevention. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, I spoke with Jose Miranda, ACCT's Senior Government Relations Associate, Lindsay Allman, Associate Director of Research and Knowledge Management at the Institute for College Access and Success, and Ryan Bonner, Assistant Director of Financial Aid and Consumer Relations at Guilford Technical Community College. We discussed a brief published last fall titled What Works? College Strategies for Reducing Student Loan Default. This interview was recorded on Zoom, so you may notice a few brief dips in audio quality. The beginning of the interview got cut off. The missing audio is me asking Lindsay to provide some background information about TICAS and her role at the Institute. And success works uh, both federally and in states to promote college affordability and equitable access to higher education. So we are a nonpartisan nonprofit organization and we center research and data in our analysis of policy problems and also in um, use those data and research to guide the development of specific policy recommendations to solve those problems. And underlying all our work is the belief that higher education can be a vital pathway to economic mobility, but at the same time, our current system is structured in a way that makes it harder, if not impossible, for some students to access those opportunities. So our work really centers on making sure college costs aren't a barrier to students' enrollment and completion goals. And the other side of the same coin there is accountability. So in addition to our work to provide more resources for students and colleges, we also work to make sure the investments we're asking policymakers and students to make in higher education are likely to pay off. So the brief that we're discussing is about student loan default and college default rates or CDRs. Uh, Can you tell us what those are and why it's important for colleges to actively work to improve theirs. So I'll start with Jose. Sure. Um, so on on the default aspect itself on how it impacts borrowers. So default is the worst scenario that a student borrower can possibly have. Um, it means that they're not able to repay their loans and it can have lifelong uh, repercussions for them in terms of ability to uh, obtain a job ability to obtain a good credit, purchase a house, make investments and continue doing forward. So that's one thing that we're trying to avoid, making sure that our students, any student borrower, ever reaches the point of defaulting on their loans. Lindsay, could you uh, dive a little bit deeper into what CDRs are and the consequences of uh, high CDR for colleges? Yeah, of course. So as Jose mentioned, you know, default is really categorically the worst possible borrowing outcome. It um, adds a lot of cost to the loan itself. Um, and the federal government can do a lot of things to collect on that unpaid debt, like garnish your wages or withhold tax refunds and other federal benefits. And it sort of comes with um, some spiraling consequences for the borrower. Um, and so the CDR provides a really discrete and comparable measure of the risk of default uh, that students have. Um, so it really adds a lot of value in that respect. And it can also be used to track that default risk over time. Uh, in the simplest terms, the CDR is a measure of the risk that a school's borrowers will default shortly after leaving their program. And so how does it work? The CDR is calculated as the share of borrowers who are entering repayment in a single fiscal year who default by the end of the second following fiscal year, or a simpler way to say that is basically the share of borrowers who default within three years. 
And the CDR is the federal government's really most long-standing debt outcome measure, but it does more than just measure that risk of default. It's also used for accountability. And the CDR accountability system was actually established three decades ago with bipartisan support. And since that time, it's been used to make sure schools are not consistently leaving their student loan borrowers with unaffordable debt. So the Department of Education calculates it's a CDR for each school each year and uses that CDR to determine continued eligibility for federal student aid. And just like the severe consequences students can face as a result of default, schools can also face some pretty harsh consequences for crossing the threshold of a rate that the government has deemed unacceptably high. So schools with significant uh, borrowing rates who also have a CDR over 30% for three years in a row can lose the ability to offer any federal student loans and Pell Grants. And if a school's CDR exceeds 40% for a single year, they can lose access to federal student loans. And so, you know, the goal of the CDR is to ensure colleges remain squarely focused on preventing default. But because of those potential sanctions, the CDR can actually feel pretty scary to college leaders. And in fact, some community colleges even choose not to participate in the federal loan program because those potential risks are so significant. But the fact remains that the CDR really continues to be an important part of ensuring the integrity of federal investments in financial aid and to protect those investments that we're all making. And so while the sanctions can feel overwhelming, uh, there's actually a due process built into the CDR's use and accountability, which is important to recognize. There's a number of challenge and appeals options that colleges have uh, access to if they meet certain criteria, things like processes for ensuring data accuracy or options if a school has reason to believe that the CDR they have doesn't accurately re represent the default risk uh, among their student population. One of those options actually called the Participation Rate Index or PRI appeal is particularly important to community colleges where borrowing rates tend to be much lower. The PRI is an appeal option that can exempt schools with very low borrowing rates from sanctions. Um, and it's really designed to ensure that the CDR is a fair judge of risk to students. You know, there's definitely opportunities to better communicate and streamline the PRI so more folks understand it and that would go a long way toward making school sure schools don't feel compelled or pressured to opt out of the federal student loan program rather than navigate the complexities of that PRI but you know really at the same time we know that schools can and do meaningfully lower their CDRs without limiting students' access to federal loans. And that really gets us to why TIGAS wanted to partner with ACCT back on our original 2014 project um, to dig into default rates and, and strategies that colleges can use to successfully protect themselves from sanctions and also protect their students from default. So like you said, this isn't the first time that TIGAS and ACCT have worked together. Um, specifically on CDRs. So do you want to uh, discuss a little more uh, what the 2014 report that we partnered on was uh, about? Sure. And I'll also say that you know, TICUS has been fortunate to partner with ACCT on a whole host of things over the years, including this, this default work. Um, so we're, we're really pleased to be able to do that work with you all and uh, also glad to be able to join this podcast. <laughs> Um, but going to, in terms of our 2014 uh, project, you know, at the time, uh, there had just been some changes to the CDR, uh, how it was calculated, as well as the threshold that colleges would be held accountable to. And understandably, there was some anxiety about that. 
So we really wanted to uh, demonstrate that smart targeted strategies could protect colleges from sanctions at the same time as protecting students from default. And we wanted to highlight the concrete ways that colleges can use their CDR data to design strategies that support the unique needs of their borrowers and to reduce their CDRs all while continuing to provide the federal loans that so many students need to rely on. So you know, our approach to the project goes back, I would say to the fundamental principle of default reduction plans, which are required by the Department of Education of schools in some cases. And that is this idea of comprehensive analysis of defaulters, doing the work to dig into the data, identify who it is that's defaulting, what kind of trends you can see about that group to understand why they're defaulting and what to do about it. You know, because in order to fix something, you need a good sense of what's wrong. Um, so improving CDRs really starts with diagnosing the problem and developing an appropriate action plan that is going to reflect each school's unique challenges. And that's going to start with looking at the data. So we worked with a diverse group of nine community colleges across the country. We analyzed their CDR data, getting really deep into the data trenches with their NSLDS reports, other administrative student data. And we conducted interviews with administrators to understand the unique context of each of these colleges. And that work allowed us to really put together a profile of each of these schools that included that context the key trends in the, their data, and also the default management strategies that each college was using at the time. And after putting together all of that, uh, we also offered additional college-specific strategies that uh, they could consider to improve their CDRs further. So jumping forward uh, six years to 2020, Jose, why revisit the topic and what was the intention behind this new brief? Yeah, absolutely. So we knew that the fiscal year 2017 cohort default rates were going to be coming out in the fall of 2020. And then with the pandemic happening and sending all colleges scrambling in the spring, transitioning to online education, we started getting a little bit concerned about how that was going to impact students' ability to complete their programs and down the road, their ability to, um, to repay their loans. Of particular concern to us were low-income students, non-traditional students, and the many students who would have a hard time transitioning to an online education. Luckily, the federal government provided some protections for federal borrowers to ensure that nobody fell into default while this was happening, and those protections were extended, and they were currently, uh, they were recently extended also into 2021, but we know that the impact of this pandemic and this economic recession is going to be long-term, particularly for borrowers who may not be able to complete their programs or who may have paused their programs currently in order to deal with anything else that, that is happening in their lives. So we wanted to take a look and see what could be done, what could institutions do, starting thinking proactively to ensure that they don't fall into a high CDR rate moving forward and to make sure that students ultimately it's about the students the students don't come out looking bad at the, at the end of all of this so the idea behind this the the revisiting was to look back at some of these nine institutions and just have a conversation with them and just ask how they have what strategies how their strategies have evolved in default prevention and seeing how 
any of the recommendations we had used or how any changes to our their, their institutions, their educational system could be t um, tied up to progress in their upcoming FY17 default rates. So is there anything from that uh, new report that you want to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. So like, just to juxtapose like with, with what Lindsay mentioned, you know, in 2014, we dug really deep into the data, looking at specific numbers for every for each of the nine institutions. We didn't do that this time. It was more so looking at the strategies. What had they been doing? What was working? What was not working? And some of the major takeaways we saw, it's something that reinforced some of the recommendations we had provided is that taking data-informed approaches and targeted approaches to support students in order to leverage the limited resources that institutions have could get the biggest bang for the buck for a lot of these colleges. And it could also help a lot of students avoid that default result in the end. Um, and you will, you will pretty soon hear from Ryan as to how some of these data-informed approaches, targeted approaches, and student outreach have yielded very positive outcomes in improving colleges' default rates. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, I don't, it might be helpful to go back to some of our, our main findings from the, the 2014 report um, that really echoed throughout our conversations when we, when we followed up things like completion being really, really important um, and the nuances of differences with student characteristics and, and really the fact that there's no one size fits all approach, um, especially in light of different colleges having different bar populations, different default risks. And so when we went back to revisit some of these uh, colleges to learn how their strategies had evolved over time, uh, one of the things that, that we noticed and which our new brief reflects is really the importance of campus-wide commitment to student success that um, really essentially efforts to help students succeed in their program are default reduction efforts, uh, pure and simple, uh, that they're not um, individual siloed efforts uh, you know, relegated to some corner of a financial aid office or even just simply within the financial aid office. So that was one of the, um, I would say, another key takeaway of our, of our more recent brief as well. I think that's important to highlight. So, okay, so Ryan, at Guilford Technical Community College, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the student population that you serve? Yes, I'd be happy to. And uh, thank you for having me, Jacob. I'll say, Lindsay, it's nice to speak with you again, as always. Um, GTCC is located here in beautiful Jamestown, North Carolina. That's considered the Piedmont Triad area. So it's kind of the central part of North Carolina. Um, we have a very diverse student population here. Um, the average age of our students right now is in the mid 20s, but of course, being a community college, you know, that range can go, um, can go all the way up. Um, right now, our students are primarily um, part-time students, about 60, 40 part-time to full-time, although the data for defaulters is a little bit different there. Um, we typically serve in a calendar year about, or an academic year, I'm sorry, about 15,000 curriculum students. Um, and when you add in things like continuing education, um, we serve close to 30,000 students in our community each year. Uh, in terms of the financial aid office, about 75% of our students are recipients of some form of financial aid, and about 35% of those recipients are student loan borrowers. 
Um, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention as well, it's a pretty exciting time on our campus. We're in the middle of some major renovations and we have some state of the art buildings that are being unveiled here in just a couple of months. So an exciting time to be here. And, and again, just thank you for giving me the time to speak a little bit about what we've been able to do here at Guilford Tech. Oh yeah, not a problem. Um, and just to dive a little bit deeper into what you're doing at Guilford, uh, you have seen a significant decrease in your CDR, is that right? I think that's, that's fair to say, yeah. And so just to provide a context, um, back in 2014, when we would get the information for the 2011 cohort, as Lindsay um, explained earlier, you know, this is a three-year calculation as we look at it. So in 2014, when this report came out, we had gotten our calculation for the 2011 cohort and our default rate at the time, the draft default rate was 29.9%. And of course, the sanctionable rate is 30%. We were one-tenth of a percentage point from that during the time we got our draft rate. Um, and I actually started uh, in January of 2014. So um, personally and professionally for me, that was, that was intimidating, of course. Um, right now, so we just received um, the FY17 cohort default rate. Uh, that number for GTCC is 11.9%. Okay, so that's a, that's a pretty big drop. Yeah, we're, we're, we're really pleased with it, yes. Um, that must have taken a lot of work to you know, to to earn that drop. Um, especially, I mean, it, I don't know. The, I don't know how common this is, but that sounds like a pretty short amount of time to see such a dramatic change. Um, is that? Did, can you can you speak on that a little bit? I know that's not one of the uh, questions, but is that is that common to see such a dramatic uh, decrease that quickly? No, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that this is common. From the data that I've seen from our from our peers, at least in North Carolina, I tend to study more of the North Carolina community colleges, um, and then of course national trends as I can. But um, no, I, I wouldn't say that it's common. But I would just say that it kind of speaks to the unique position that we were in, um, not just because the default rate was such that we needed to to address it, but also that the the buy-in that we had from, from our leadership, from our administration, our board, um, you know, they understood that this isn't just a, how do we look at Guilford College type problem. This is a how successful are our students being type problem. And so the, the buy-in was immediate. Um, you know, obviously other than they created a brand new position in 2014 to address this, um, but we've just, you know, here in, in this area, we've, we've regularly been given access um, to the parts of the campus that we need. So for example, when we say this is a campus-wide concern, so what does that really mean if you're going to create a default management program at your college? Well, the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to create a default aversion committee, and that committee is not going to be just employees who have worked on originating student loans in your processing office, right? These are going to be people who work in your counseling office, um, academic advisors, um, you know, we have a wonderful resource, and I'll probably talk again about it later, called Titan Link. That's sort of a community resource center here for our students on campus. Um, so, you, you know, for example, and I'll touch on that community resource, but, you know, if, if your basic needs aren't being met, you're not prioritizing your student loan payments, you know. So we have to think about this holistically as well. Um, I would say in terms of, you know, we had discussed a little bit about 
about this being a challenge, you know, that, that maybe some colleges have just chosen to not undertake. Um, and that's certainly understandable. I mean, so if you think about what Lindsay was saying earlier that, you know, the student loan program, borrowing student loans for our students is directly tied into our ability to give the Pell Grant to our students. Um, if, you know, if a community college loses the Pell Grant, the, the doors are gonna close. So I'm sure that it wasn't so much fear that, that caused them to make that decision as, as it was just maybe a pragmatic attitude saying that, you know, here at our college, would we be able to address this in the time that we have with the resources we have? Um, I'm, I'm thankful that at GTCC, that the decision, you know, it kind of really aligns with my personal belief system, but the decision our board and our leadership, our administration made was that we're gonna be one of the few colleges in North Carolina to stay in the program. So there are 58 community colleges in North Carolina and, and right now only about 15 or 16 of them are still offering federal student loans. Um, so again, this was a, like you said, this was a choice that everyone made and, and most people's choice was to, was to get out of the loan program. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty passionate when it comes to making sure that we do what we need to do, what we should do when it comes to making uh, the access for higher education available. And um, so, you know, you can definitely say that this was a, this was a lot of work, you know, to have that, that impact in such a short amount of time. And it was very challenging. Um, but that, you know, that's usually just kind of in terms of how you as, as a person or how you as your college and staff address problems. Um, I've always thought that, that, you know, proactive rather than reactive is the way to go about this. So um, why not take it instead of a, as a challenge as an opportunity and say, well, you know, a large portion of our students previously who were in repayment have been struggling. What a great opportunity to reach out and see how many of them we can, we can put on the right path. Um, so, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy at the beginning um, because, as someone new into this position, for example, I can speak for myself. Um, <laughs> believe me, this report from from CICAS and ACCT was very helpful for me because I had to use things like that as a as a framework to get started. Um, so knowing that you know that you guys had already done some research for us, getting ahead of some of the data, um, you know that uh, it's very helpful. And, and you know, I'll try to go in a little bit further detail about how we use specifically some of your reports to go over. Um, to inform our interventions, but yeah, just in general, you know, we, we needed to know what to do on, on page one, day one. So, you know, it was creating a default committee, creating a default management plan. Um, and you'll find out when you're starting to do this at your, you know, those of you listening at home, if you, if you take this on at your college, you'll know that the really early into the process of getting that committee together, um, you'll know that it's, it is a absolutely vital um, part of that that's campus-wide. Now you will, you will certainly need to have some organization and someone will be in kind of in charge of the process. Um, but yeah, this, this, this was never, we would have never been as successful as we were without the buy-in um, campus-wide. And so um, I'm very thankful to our leadership and administration for that. And I'm, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm, I, th I just, it's important to note that that makes a difficult process easier for sure. And sometimes it's just, you know, you might need to provide them with the information that they need to, to make this decision and just to say, hey, 
you know, yes, this is a challenge, but you know, hey, these types of things can work. And not only can they lower your default rate, um, but like I said, more importantly, this is, you know, the less students you have struggling in their loan repayment, the more successful students you have. So as Lindsay touched on earlier, anything you do on campus that increases your student's success, even if it's not related to financial aid at all, you are increasing their chances of, of successful loan repayment down the line. I truly believe that. So uh, can you discuss some of the specific things that you did or that Guilford did to lower your co cohort default rate and if any of these efforts were informed by, I mean, you, you sort of touched on this a little bit, but uh, maybe what, uh, what Guilford did specifically to lower its uh, CDR and what, what parts of that sort of came out of that 2014 analysis. Absolutely. So, and, and just to piggyback on what you're saying earlier, because definitely in terms of that, that analysis and that framework, getting started with the default aversion committee and creating a default management plan, campus wide buy-in. So, you know, uh, I would tell you that a, a faculty member in my business office um, was probably the most active member of the committee outside of myself for the last seven years. You can just tell he, he had a true passion for student loan related things. That's not what he taught. Um, but that's, that's a really important part of this is to, is to get organized at the very beginning. So 2014 for me was, was the process of getting organized. Um, I'd like to not only talk about, um, you know, what we did and, and also how it was informed, but, uh, but also about some of the challenges that schools have. And they kind of go hand in hand. So you'll notice early in the process one of the biggest challenges you have is how to take the data provided by the Department of Education and use it. And so it's one thing to say, all right, well, on NSLDS, I can go look up the delinquent borrower report. Well, who on your campus is going to be the person who sits down and creates the, um, the extracts to pull in that data? So You'll, you'll learn pretty quickly that that information isn't provided to colleges in a very digestible way. Um, these reports are very difficult to manipulate. Um, and usually you have to, to use multiple reports just to get the basic together data that you're, you're looking for. Um, so sometimes part of the challenge is are just knowing where to go to get the right report, who to, you know, who to use, that kind of thing. So um, we've been very fortunate um, that we've been able to, to not only have some, you know, some plans in place that were able to be, that allowed us to be successful, but we also kind of, we sought out some resources as well. And so I'll go over that. Um, but other than creating the plan itself and getting organized, the first thing you really need to do and the first thing that we really did um, was evaluate what time we have, what resources we have, what financial resources we may, may be able to use to address this problem. So um, when Lindsay says it's not always a one size fit all, um, that not only is that true college to college, it can always be true um, year to year, you know, um, there, there could be things, you know, I, in 2014, this was what I was doing 40 hours a week. Um, but potentially, let's say in 2017, I was giving it maybe 30 hours a week. So what, what I was saying was sometimes, 
um, you know, you have to sit down and really address, all right, do we have time to do all these things? Because we'll go over some of the interventions that we laid out, but a lot of, you know, our, our default aversion plan, you know, has 50 or 60 things on it. Um, not all of those are going to get done every semester. Some of those things you put on that plan because you know that it's something that you will one day need to do. Um, but in terms of the number one thing that allowed us to be successful was actually having successful outreach. So when I first began, we were basically just using the systems we had in place, which was, you know, the phone number I last had for a student when they were last here. Um, and, you know, the email address we had provided them as a student. But if you think about this, you know, in kind of a real world, you know, I, I graduated from my undergrad college in 2004. I haven't checked that school email since 2004. Um, some, some people may, might do that differently, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think reaching out to students through their school email after they left our college was the, was the smartest way to do it. And we, we certainly found out that that wasn't the most successful way to do it. Um, we ended up early in the process, um, you know, we knew that this wasn't going to be a situation where we were going to use a lot of financial resources. We wanted to research um, what other options are out there. Um, and it turns out there actually are, are free resources available. Um, so, for example, uh, at that time, we partnered with Great Lakes, who was one of the loan servicers, and we used their, um, their free service called Portfolio Navigator. Uh, and that just allowed me to upload, instead of taking the reports themselves, I was just able to upload the delinquent borrower report and the school portfolio report to their site, and they could provide me with the, um, the emails that needed to go out. So I would use my email template and they would say, yep, here is, you know, based on all the information you sent, here are the students who are in late stage delinquency. Well, that's where you need to be focusing your efforts, no matter what, whether you're spending two hours a week on it or 40, the best thing you can do to lower your, your CER is get a cure, what they would refer to as a cure for students who are at the closest they could to default. So late stage, you know, you're, you're close to being 270 days delinquent on that loan. So, I mean, you know, and if you haven't responded to that loan servicers previous nine emails, you know, the chances might not be great. Um, so reaching out from the school, we found that to be a lot more successful. Um, so, and we would kind of partner some of our email messages and say, Hey, you know, you might hear from them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but once we started reaching out to their personal email, which was something that we were able to do through that service as well, and also just sort of organize our, our work in terms of, all right, this is the stage of delinquency we need to focus on, or this is the cohort, you know, we need to focus on. So a lot of times when we think about this being a data-driven process, we always think about it in terms of demographics. And of course, that's important. And, and I'll go into how we've used some of that information as well. But you can't just use demographics because we can't, you know, if people named Ryan are defaulting at a higher rate, that doesn't mean I can prevent Ryan from borrowing student loans here at GTCC. Um, so you, you, it's not always about the demographics. Um, so when we use data, we're not only using it for that, you know, we do use data, for example, to find out, um, you know, over a four year period when we analyze the larger, you know, a more comprehensive look at our defaulters from 2011 to 2015, um, we found that that entire defaulting population, we're found about 45% of those students didn't complete or completed three or fewer credits. Well, if you know, for example, 
that you have a very limited amount of time to be in front of these students to reach them, then the best use of your time is to A, make sure you have great contact information, uh, and B, um, you know, you might need to send them the information that you have. So, for example, we talk about things that we maybe tried and and, and didn't work. Um, we recreate, well, I don't want to say it didn't work, but um, we created a big speaker series on campus where we had a, what we call the Future Millionaire Speaker Series. And we you know we talk financial literacy, um, but, you know, kind of topics that were a little bit more relatable. So buying a used car versus buying a new car, um, you know, the basics of credit, the basics of um, investing, just kind of getting people familiar with things like that. And, and we found that the reception was great. The attendance was not. So, you know, we're taking up, we're taking up time, hours, you know, resources to put on these events that aren't well attended. Well, who's to say that I can't take that same information and embed it in a video and email that out? You know, and maybe I had to take a little time to learn a little bit more about HTML. But to me, that was that was a good use of an afternoon because now I can confidently embed videos and that seems to be a much more logical way to, to reach people. So when you're when you're constantly looking at what works and doesn't work, um, you know, you don't do it to, to, you know, to chastise yourself or to say, oh, this was a waste of time. You know, nothing was really wasted. It's just that, you know, that with such with time also being a limited resource, um, you've got to really just kind of do as much as you can. So. You know, some colleges out there will not not have maybe an entire position dedicated to this, um, and yet some colleges might have an entire you know department dedicated to it. So, once you know how much work you're, or how much I should say time you're able to dedicate to it, you can sort of prioritize things. But the first priority would always be outreach, um, and that's not just to defaulted students. That's to students who are in their grace period, who are in repayment, and who have also defaulted on their student loans. Um, so that that outreach doesn't stop. Um, sorry, let me switch gears here. So I want to get back into um, kind of give you guys some specifics as well. Um, so, for example, you know, we we were able to see that uh, uh, of our defaulters over a five year period, 70 percent of our defaulters stated that they were unemployed or underemployed. So we immediately took that data and we said, you know, what are we doing to enhance our, our CCN, um, our job network services? Are we putting on one career fair a year? Or can that be one a semester? Um, how are we informing students about our career services department? And not only that, but we actually revamped, um, we actually put a new committee out there and revamped the entirety of our career services webpage. Um, and, and, you know, so it doesn't take a genius to start looking at that and see, oh, wow, you know, students who are, who are successful in their employment might be successful in their payment obligations. You know, those things are actually pretty linearly related, right? Um, so, for example, that, that's one, one step we took. Um, sometimes you have to sort of, you know, you know what you want to do, but, the, you know, the issues could be techno technology-based. So, for example... Um, one of the best things that we did was something that we had to wait uh, for a little bit of time to do so that the North Carolina Community College systems that we use for financial aid could process this request basically. But um, what we did is we ensure um, through a, what is called a degree audit process, we ensure that students are only taking classes in their program of study and financial aid is only going to pay for classes that are in your program of study. 
Um, so th this really limits, you know, A, the amount of time it takes, you know, to, to graduate, but also the amount of money that you're going to borrow, especially if that's money that's borrowed, that's not going to actually help you, uh, you know, in your career or gain a, a career. So, you know, there are things like that um, that, we're, that we're always, literally always addressing on campus. Um, another thing as well is that we noticed that if, you know, if we're losing students early uh, in the process, then what are we doing during the first weeks of school? You know, how are we changing our, our sort of welcoming events to, to provide a little bit of this information up front as well? Um, so it's something that you're always adjusting. Um, and I would say that in terms of, you know, what has really allowed us to be successful outside of just tireless outreach to student borrowers. Um, and again, I, I can't really reiterate how that will be you know, when it, when it comes time to saying, all right, who's going to roll their sleeves up and who wants to see, you know, that sizable change in, in a relatively short amount of time, it's going to be who's going to be just making the calls and sending the emails. Um, and and, and that, that can't slow down. But what else you also need to do? So when I talked about data um, and using data outside of demographics, so for example, we use it um, in terms of evaluating our programs of study. Um, if you're able to see that, you know, we only had 40 people graduate from this one program, but 28 of them defaulted. Sure, 28 out of maybe a thousand students isn't a lot, but that's a, that's an alarming, um, you know, piece of data to me, that percentage. So maybe is that classroom, is that program of study where we want to have enhanced financial literacy um, outreach? So we literally have begun going into certain classes, or I should say certain programs, um, and, and, and this is where you get buy-in because, you know, our faculty, of course, know that they need all the time they can, you know, in those 15, 16 classes, they're, they're, they need every minute. So it's been really heartening to see them be willing to say, no, I know that, I know that this is important too. And we want our students to be successful, not just here in this class, but for the rest of their lives. Um, so that, that's been really helpful as well as kind of not only specifically targeting students, but targeting programs. Um, I think that's really helpful as well. Um, and I would just say in terms of looking at the data, a lot of times it says, you know, it's easy to say, I'm going to take this data. Well, do you know how to take the loan record detail report and get that information to your institutional research? So sometimes it's, you know, there's trial and error, there's, there's help. Um, you know, we kind of a lot of us here in the North Carolina Community College system, we rely on each other at different colleges to, to help. And I, I certainly, you know, since I've kind of been in a unique position to, to be allowed to focus on student loan default more than other professionals in this area, then this has kind of allowed me to be, um, you know, loosest sense of the word, a subject matter expert. Um, but what the, you know, what you have to be an expert in is not evaluating extracts from loan record detail reports. You have to be an expert in wanting to talk to students about getting in a better place. Uh, and so I don't find that to be difficult at all. I, I love I love these 90-minute appointments where I know at the beginning they're unsure of, of how to crawl out and why they were even in this hole to begin with and what this means. And at the end of it, not only do we have a plan for um, you know, loan rehabilitation, but we might have a plan of what it could look like um, now that there's no longer that, that closed door for um, Title IV student aid. So maybe that plan can now include getting back into college. 
um, and continuing on that career path. Um, so the, the, these conversations, uh, to me, they're, they're fun to have. And that's why, you know, when we kind of come back to the beginning, that's why I've always looked at this process like an opportunity more than a challenge. Um, and if you think about, you know, okay, well, in 2014, our cohort, you know, we had about a thousand students default out of the, you know, whatever, 4,000 that were in repayment. When our cohort right now, we had a, just a couple hundred, you know, 300 and some to default. So if you're talking about, you're talking about over, you can have hundreds, hundreds, literally fewer students have to deal with all of those um, issues that, that Jose and Lindsay have talked about. Not, you know, so it's not just about what happens to the college, you know, loss of occupational li licensure, loss of Title IV aid, um, you know, seven years of damage on the credit report. Um, you know, that, that can be really tough and, and people don't wake up and they don't, you know, they're, they're not born knowing which logins you use to complete the income driven repayment plan. Um, you know, and so we, we just expect these students to, to be able to do this on their own. Um, and that's, that's frustrating because that's not how the process should be. So, you know, again, you can be, you can be in a really unique position um, to help people if you, if you address student loan default. And I, I'd be real remiss if colleges thought that the only reason to address this problem was that their, their default rate was close to they might be sanctioned. You know, it's, it's, it's about how much work can you do to, to better the lives of your students. So now that your CDR is under 12%, that surely that doesn't mean that the work is done. Um, would you say this is something that only colleges with high CDRs or those close to reaching that 30% threshold should worry about? No, I, I, I truly, I truly hope that wouldn't be how they'd approach it. And, and honestly, that's not how we would approach it here. Cause you know, that, uh, that 11.9%, sure. We can, if you look back and where we were, you know, you can definitely allow yourself a moment to, to, to feel good about that, but that is not a, that, that number is not chiseled in stone. That's a, that's a very fluid number. And if we didn't address it again, it would be 18% and then 24%, you know, so it, this is, this is never something that would, that would need to be, um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you could ever solve this problem because there, I don't know of any schools who, who are in this loan program who, who have nothing but successful borrowers. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're not a school that can, that can afford to think like that. Um, I think we, our value statement is, is much more student focused. So I, um, I would kind of challenge other schools who, who don't believe that this work is as important to them is to, is to really evaluate what your, your mission statement is, your value statement is. Um, Cause I'm guessing you'll see that, that this is very directly related to that. Um, and, you know, and I wanted to kind of touch on a few other things as well. So, um, you know, for example, in, in your report, um, you guys let us know that there was there was something noteworthy about exit counseling, right? That that um, borrowers who haven't completed exit counseling are much more likely to default. Well, and that makes sense to us, right? Because that's getting the information they need about how the you know about their rights and responsibilities as a borrower. So if they're not getting that information, that certainly you know stands to reason that they wouldn't best navigate that process. So. I mean, from, from early in 2014, we took, we took your work there and we made sure that not only our students who graduate, obviously going to be getting that information, but it's any student at any point in time who drops below half time. So that's a report that we run and I'm still running that report every month at this college and we're making sure that information goes out. Um, 
So, you know, you, you really want to, you can get really specific with things and just say, all right, you know, now we can, you know, now we can focus on career services because of this data. Now we can focus on this particular program. You know, now we can really enhance how we've, how we've evaluated exit counseling as well. Um, but I think the most successful schools who do this process, um, what they're gonna be successful with is, is not only evaluating the data, but evaluating how much time you have to be able to spend on this and, and, and using that time as a resource because your, your students are the end result of this. Their successful repayment, uh, their successful ability to contribute in this community, that, that can all kind of be tied into the information that you provide them that you might be the first person to provide that information to them. So if you're, if you're preventing 10 students from entering into default, that's a, that's a phenomenal impact on your campus. And so if you're talking about hundreds of students, then um, I don't know, I, just, I, I would say that it would be really hard to, to, to explain at that point in time why you wouldn't think that this is a priority. Um, so what, what would really be, what I would love would be that colleges who are out there who might be thinking about leasing the loan program, if, if they saw that there are ways around that where they can still have, you know, the, the financial access their students might need and they can, and actually not only take that as an opportunity to not limit their access, but you can actually take that as an opportunity to, to provide them with more financial management based information. It seems like it's a, it's a no brainer to me, like a win, a win, win process. So, you know, yeah, it might not be a one size fit all each school's, you know, process won't look the same way. I can say it will, it will start with an evaluation of the program, being able to determine who can take the time that's necessary, determine what time your college has, um, and, then, and then just starting to reach out to borrowers and repayment borrowers in their grace period. Um, and then of course, borrowers who've already defaulted, because that, you know, you might, if you look at that and you just say, oh, well, they've already hit our CDR, so, I'm not going to waste my time with them. If that's how you look at this process, you're, 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 you're in the wrong career. Um, we don't get a job here at a community college working in financial aid because we're here to make things hard on people. Um, this, th this access is very important. So um, we're, we're obviously, we're very proud of the work we did here. Um, it just, it, 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 it's a credit not only to our students, um, I would just say to the to the leadership on campus, to the to the community, to the financial aid office, to the career services office, to the counseling. I mean, this, you know, it, it, the more familiar you are with how this program has to be run, that the more that it is not only campus wide, it's it's kind of community wide. You'll see you'll see a lot more um, employers at the career fair once you really um, invest yourself in this process. That kind of thing. Um, sorry, I know Jacob, I might've gotten a little bit off track about this, um, without that last question, but, you know, I just, I, I would really be remiss if I thought that, that, that colleges thought, oh, my, my default rate is only 10% or 20%. I'm nowhere near the, the sanctioned, um, A, that's, that's sort of a unrealistic way to look at federal regulations. Obviously, in, you know, when we went from a two-year calculation to a three-year calculation, that one change went, that made a lot of colleges say, oh, this is now this is now a thing. Um, so, just you know, waiting for administrations to make this easier is not the way to go about it. This is just a problem you can start solving uh, immediately. 
And it doesn't, honestly, I think we, we have shown, I hope that we've been a good example of, of showing that it doesn't take um, a large financial commitment from the college. It just takes passion and it takes, uh, you know, buy-in from administration and leadership. And, and once, once your students have the access, once you have the access, um, you know, a lot of these barriers to success can, can be dissolved, you know, and so you know, if your basic needs are being met through our, our wonderful Titan Link office, you can you can now get back to focusing on on things like your family, like your loan repayment. You know, if you're if you finally have been able to to connect to a local employer to do, you know, it's it's not always that people are hiding from their responsibilities. It's it's maybe maybe there's a little bit of shame that says, I know that I've borrowed this, um, can't pay it right now. So. What, an op what a wonderful opportunity to explain, you know, how income-driven repayment plans work. Um, so again, I guess maybe just to summarize, I would say that, that it's, it's certainly a challenge to get this kind of work done, but it's also certainly an opportunity. If you would like more information about the report discussed today, I'll include a link in this episode's description. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.